Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Todd Moss, Director of the Energy for Growth Hub at the Center for Global Development. Todd has worked for years at the intersection of energy and economic development, with a focus on developing economies in Africa and elsewhere. We'll cover two major topics in our discussion. First, avoiding the so-called oil curse in the nation of Guyana, and second, supporting economic growth in the developing world by improving energy access for businesses and industries. Stay with us. Todd Moss from the Energy for Growth Hub, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Great to be with you. So, Todd, we're going to talk uh, about a couple things today. We're going to talk about a recent article you wrote on Guyana and the oil curse or the natural resource curse. And we're also going to talk about your work on energy access in the developing world. But first, can you give us a sense of how you got into the field of energy in the first place? Yeah, I think I came at it in a different way than most people uh, through a total accident of history that started with uh, Nigeria's debt negotiation with the Paris Club. I found myself um, as um, the West Africa deputy in the State Department for Secretary Condoleezza Rice. Um, And I was an economist playing as a diplomat. And something that really struck me is that in our discussions with a lot of our African allies, what they really wanted from us was investment in infrastructure, and particularly in the power sector. You know, we were asking them for help on counterterrorism and promote democracy and human rights and um, all of these things we want from our allies. And they wanted us to try to encourage, you know, General Electric and other American companies to invest in their in their country. Um, so when I left the State Department and went back to the think tank, the Center for Global Development, um, I started a, an energy program there that was focused largely on uh, on ways that the U.S. could encourage uh, investment in the African uh, power sector. That makes sense, and and of course that work has you know continued in in government over the years with the Power Africa program and and other initiatives. That's right. You've got Power Africa. You've also got an expansion of what's currently OPEC or the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. That that's actually going to turn into a much bigger and more flexible new agency this October called the U.S. Development Finance Corporation. And that's going to be the principal U.S. government tool for investing in infrastructure overseas. So um, so we, we are seeing actually a lot of movement um, on the government side. That's really interesting. So we'll have to have you back and talk about that um, specifically um, at some point in the future. Um, I apologize. I have a little bit of a cold, so uh, that's why I sound a little scratchy over here. So sorry to you and sorry to our <laughs> listeners, uh, but we'll we'll get through it together. Um, so let's talk about our first subject, uh, uh, Guyana and um, and the idea of the oil curse. So this idea of an oil curse or, or natural resource curse, it's sometimes called, um, in really broad terms, it describes the theory that Countries with large natural resource endowments, particularly fossil fuel endowments, are sometimes subject to uh, problems associated with the governance uh, of that resource and, and governance more broadly. Um, so there's a rich academic literature on this topic. There's some debate as to 
you know, the, the source of the resource curse itself and whether the resource is the source of the curse or whether there are other factors at play. We're not going to dive into to that academic discussion right now, um, but we're going to talk about uh, applying it to the case of, of Guyana. Um, and uh, there's been, you know, major um, discoveries of oil offshore Guyana in recent years. And you wrote an article, uh, or maybe it was a blog post about this called, uh, Guyana's, uh, oil boom, two steps down, four to go. And, um, so can you just give us a little bit of background on the discovery of oil in Guyana? And also tell me if I'm pronouncing the country's name correctly. Um, and, and give us a little sense of why this discovery raises concerns uh, about an oil curse in the first place. Sure. So you're you're right, Daniel, that um, that there is this uh, pattern that we've seen not everywhere, but in lots of places where countries um, that strike it rich with uh, a major discovery, if it's oil or mining, tend to also be associated with a bunch of economic and political bads, things like um, uh, authoritarianism, things like very narrow exports, high poverty, high corruption. Um, and when, you know, it's not unlike the phenomenon that we see with lottery winners where, you know, I, I once in a while, maybe twice a year, I'll play the lottery and I, I'm pretty confident if I won a hundred million dollars, I could spend it well. Um, but actually the statistics are against me. Um, <laughs> you know, if I'm going to behave like the average lottery winner, you know, my cousins are all going to come out for my money. I'm going to start behaving badly. And it's probably got a pretty high chance of, of ruining my life. Um, and that same phenomenon actually applies to lots of countries. When they hit the oil or mining uh, lottery, all kinds of bad behavior happens. Uh, you know, countries start moving in, in, in some negative directions. Um, now, Guyana is a tiny country on the north coast of South America. It's less than a million people. Um, but they've had several very, very large offshore uh, oil discoveries. And they're about to be hit in the next couple of years with a literal wall of cash. And so they're very vulnerable to some of these uh, these potential negative dynamics. Um, and you're right in your, you know, in your introduction that um, that it's not exactly clear what are the, pan the, the channels for the resource curse and where does it apply, where does it not. Um, but one thing that I found through my work, including um, a book that uh, a book that we published on this and and a lot of work uh, looking at um, the, the cases of Iraq and the U.S. state of Alaska, is that one thing that strings all of this together is when you have a very concentrated source of income for the government that it hasn't done anything to achieve. They haven't built up a industrial base. They just had the luck of geology. And then some foreign company comes up, you know, comes into the country, gets the resource out and starts sending checks um, that the normal relationship, uh, what social scientists call the social contract between the government and the state starts to break down. And so people, the population doesn't think that those resources are there, so they don't really know what's going on. They don't really have an incentive to care. Um, and the government, they don't have an incentive to care what the people think because they're getting their money. They're not taxing their population. They're getting their resources from a foreign oil company. Um, and so the, I think that the, the most promising avenues here are 
things that help to try to foster that social contract to make that linkage between what the population does and thinks and what the government does and thinks. Right. And so so can you uh, give us a little bit more detail on, on what some of those steps might be to sort of develop or reinforce that that social contract in, in the case of Guyana? So, you know, as, as your title alludes, um, there are two steps that the government in Guyana has taken and four that you see as uh, remaining or four, four steps to go. So can you tell us a little bit about what those steps are and why each of them are important? Sure, sure. So, you know, I mean, what, one of the things from the, from the literature on, on resource curse is that people often talk about institutions, which is a very vague, abstract notion. Right. And they say, you know, if countries had strong institutions, they could really, you know, manage this money well and use it for their benefits. But if they have weak institutions, they can't, um, which may or may not be analytically correct. But it's akin to this a problem of insomnia. You know, uh, you have a patient who has insomnia and you analyze their problem. And what you've figured out is what they need to do is get more sleep. You know, it's true, <laughs> but it's not actually useful in any way. Right. So, you know, how do you, nobody can tell you how do you build strong institutions in a state. So there have been a number of, of steps, in some cases leaps forward in thinking about how um, how to rebuild that social contract. Um, and that's in trying to create the supply of information and transparency around how resources are being used, and then to raise the, the, the public demand for, for, uh, for using that information to, have, uh, to demand good governance. And so there's a little bit of a value chain here where Guyana has, um, has, has made those first two steps they provided some of that supply of information, some of that transparency. So what, what they've done is they've, they, they have been publishing most of the contracts that they're signing with, um, with the foreign oil companies. And the biggest is ExxonMobil. Um, and the second thing they've done is they've started taking steps to join an initiative called EITI or the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative which is a kind of international group that um, is a, sort of sets standards for how a government would release information about what revenues they're getting from, from, um, from uh, you know, from oil or mining. Right. And so these are two very good steps that the, the government's taking, which will increase the ability of the population in Guyana and international observers to know, okay, what money is coming in to the country from the oil. So they've done very well on how they're going to try to receive the money. The, the, the four steps that we, that we point to as where they still, they still have a ways to go is you still have to manage that money when you get it. You have to decide how to spend it and then you have to spend it. And so those are, those are, you know, the other steps that we, we talk about. One is setting up a sovereign wealth fund. Mm -hmm. This has been a mechanism where you um, you ring fence some of the revenues through a set of rules to say that we're going to we're not just going to put all this revenue into the budget and spend it. Some of that revenue will go into a special fund with a with a governance structure to be saved for the future. Right, and the famous examples of that internationally would be Norway and Saudi Arabia, and in the U.S. we'd we'd think about Alaska as you mentioned earlier. Exactly, lots of countries use sovereign wealth funds now on their own. They don't do all that much, but it's, it is a governance structure that helps you make 
decisions and particularly the rules around when the money comes in, how much do you spend today? How much do you spend tomorrow? The other steps that we mention in, uh, in the blog post are, um, one is around biometric ID, um, the new technology and biometric ID, especially when you match it with, um, with mobile money. All of that, all of a sudden, this enables you to know who your population is and to be able to deliver services in a new way. Um, and India, you know, India is doing this. Over a billion people now have unique IDs in India. Right. Um, Guyana, a country of less than a million people, uh, they could do this very quickly and very cheaply. Um, and that would then open the door to all kinds of other things. For example, if the government wanted to provide free uh, health insurance paid for by oil revenues, they would now have biometric ID um, to to manage that system. Now, we don't recommend necessarily health insurance, but we do make a recommendation, which is uh, step five, would be that a portion of the oil revenues, um, or you could do like Alaska does, a portion of the profits from the sovereign wealth fund uh, would be paid directly uh, to citizens in a regular dividend. So in Alaska, every state resident gets, um, they get a share of half of the five-year average revenues off the sovereign wealth fund. It's typically around $1,000 a year. In Guyana, there's lots of different ways you could um, do this. You could set up the rules. But the idea would be that every citizen of Guyana would get a quarterly or semi-annual payment of some kind. And the benefits of this uh, of course, this would be an immediate benefit where people would see some cash in their hand, in their pockets. But the real benefit of this is going back to um, the discussion on the social contract and the oil curse is that it would it would put a very direct stake. Uh, every Guinea citizen would be a direct shareholder of the oil and they would the incentive for them to know how is my government managing our our shared resources is very high because that would affect their dividend. Right. And actually, if you look at the state of Alaska, Alaska is you know an anomaly in so many ways. But one thing that is really striking about Alaska is that Alaskan citizens have an incredibly high degree of public discussion around fiscal and tax issues uh, beyond anything that you would see in the Continental 48. Um, and a big part of that is because the dividend discussion really focuses uh, focuses the mind. And so we, you know, there is a, a pretty strong case for that. Even a small dividend, uh, which could you know reduce poverty in a place like Guyana, but hopefully would induce uh, a positive governance incentive, uh, could could play a big role. Right. Great. That makes sense. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that was the name of the, the book you mentioned earlier, right? It was called Oil to Cash. That's right. The book Oil to Cash, which is Fighting the Resource Curse Through Cash Transfers, um, is a book that um, that I did with uh, two colleagues, uh, Caroline Lambert and uh, Stephanie Mierovich, a couple of years ago. And we looked across lots of examples around the world where, 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 where we're seeing steps in that direction. Um, and lots of opportunities to, to, to try this out. Great. What are some of the potential barriers uh, for Guyana in implementing um, uh, some of these steps? So the logistical barriers are actually quite small. Right. Um, you, you know, setting up this mechanism can be done pretty easily. Um, the real barrier is that it's a political economy question. 
you need, uh, you know, the government um, is is about to, you know, be the recipient of a large windfall, and the government would have to decide that it was in its in, in its interest uh, to uh, to share some of the that that cash directly with citizens rather than spending it all themselves. Um, and that can be a tough, uh, a tough hurdle for a lot of governments that don't, uh, maybe don't have confidence in, in their citizenry or they think that, uh, the government can spend, will, will spend the resources better, uh, than citizens will. Yeah. So another question that this makes me think of is, um, you know, the U.S. context and uh, listeners of this podcast will know, well, you know, we've talked about um, the boom in U.S. oil and gas production quite a bit. Um, are there lessons uh, from Guyana or from, you know, this set of steps that you've just described that are applicable in the U.S. context in a place like the Permian Basin or the Marcellus or the Bakken regions? Would you sort of recommend the same uh, sets of fiscal approaches uh, as you would in a place like Kiana, or are the contexts different enough to merit uh, different approaches? Well, what's unique about the U.S. relative to, um, I think, the entire rest of the world is that the subsoil rights are privately held in the U.S. rather right. than publicly held. Right. Um, so, you know, the the revenues from the Permian Basin do not all go uh, are not all sent to Washington, which then distributes uh, the largesse that way. So I think the system is fundamentally different. Where, where I do think there are some cautious lessons to be learned from the rest of the world is that people are people everywhere. Um, and um, the United States is not, um, you know, the United States is not uh, immune to to the worst instincts of, of, of uh, how people behave. Uh, we're not immune to corruption and to um, uh, all, you know, some, of, some of the worst excesses, and that a gold rush can literally bring out the worst in, in people. Mm-hmm. And so we should just assume that you know, Americans are going to behave like everyone else um, and, and try to design our public policies uh, you know, accordingly. Yeah, and it has been interesting to watch, you know, those three regions that I mentioned, the Bakken, Permian, and Marcellus, um, the state governments in those places, and this is an area where I've done some research, um, you know, just take really different approaches to managing those revenues. Um, and, and you're right that a large uh, share flows to private individuals and landowners, um, but for the share that does flow to the state government in particular, um, you know, we see really different approaches within states and, uh, and different issues coming up in those different regions. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So let's um let's transition now and um move away from the the oil curse and and move towards an area where you're I think focusing most of your time these days which is um an organization that you lead called the Energy for Growth Hub which is uh focused on promoting uh reliable and affordable energy uh for commercial and industrial consumers in regions with limited uh energy access. And so this approach is is fairly different from a lot of research and efforts that we've seen that are focused on increasing energy access for households. So can you talk a little bit about the factors that limit energy access for businesses in the places where you work and give us a sense of, you know, the theory of change that that drives your work on trying to provide energy access for businesses rather than households? Yeah. So, you know, I started the the Energy for Growth Hub 
uh, it, it grew out of a, a research uh, uh, initiative at the Center for Global Development, uh, where we were looking at, at energy issues in particularly sub-Saharan Africa, but also South Asia and parts of Latin America. And it really struck me that when people think about energy poverty in Africa, they immediately go to uh, residential electricity. Um, and if you look at the share of global energy that is residential electricity, it's about 5%. Um, but when we measure progress against energy poverty, uh, for example, in the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, SDG number 7 is modern energy for all. The metric for success for modern energy for all is household electricity. Um, so we're actually ignoring 95% of the energy uh, that is used in the economy. And even within electricity, um, the, you know, only a minority of electricity in an economy is used at home. Um, but it's what we immediately think of. We think of our fridge or we think of our lights. Um, we think of our television. Um, but most electricity is used in industry and commerce. And it's the energy um, used outside the home that actually is what drives development and what drives incomes higher. Um, and so that's why it's not that household electricity isn't important. It is. Um, but the way that Africa and the, the low-income parts of Asia are going to become more prosperous is from driving higher energy consumption outside the home, not just inside the home. So that's, that's what we really wanted to do. Um, and this is also relevant to Guyana, going back to our earlier conversation. You know, I, I didn't talk about step number six, which is to cut deals with the oil companies to electrify um, all the urban centers in the country. Um, you know, oil famously does not lead to, especially offshore oil, famously does not lead to a lot of domestic jobs. Mm -hmm. um, but the way that Guyana could produce jobs is if they had a lot of cheap uh, energy at home that could then drive uh, employment growth and economic growth um, onshore. And so that's really the approach of the, the Energy for Growth Hub, which is to look at the kinds of technologies and policies that can drive energy systems at scale um, and that deal with issues like reliability and affordability. Um, and what we're trying to do, you asked about our, our theory of change, what mm -hmm. we're really trying to do um, is create a network uh, of researchers who want to have a real-world impact. Um, and this came about because, you know, I started interacting with just incredible people at places like MIT and Stanford and Berkeley and Chicago and the Colorado School of Mines. And what I realized is that there were, there were a lot of big brains doing a lot of incredible work that was not necessarily reaching decision makers, particularly in Africa. Um, and so the kind of... Um, the, the kind of work that the Energy for Growth Hub does is to take and translate some of that work into something that a, a policymaker working in Kenya or Nigeria could act upon. And then we try to, we try to organize engagements to actually get the, the researchers and uh, the engineers in the room with the decision makers to see if we can, we can drive some change. Yeah, that's fascinating and um, really important. An interesting approach. Can you give us maybe an example or two of um, of a project that that has sort of applied these principles? Sure. So I'll give you I'll give you one here in Washington D.C. where I am, and one out uh, in the wider world. 
So, so here in Washington, the hub, um, we convened a group of, um, of energy and development finance experts to make recommendations to this new agency, the U.S. Development Finance Corporation that I mentioned earlier, um, for what kinds of things they could do in the energy sector that would be more impactful um, around the world. Um, and, you know, the, we, we have a couple of recommendations now. Just We're just putting it out um, uh, this week. Um, but it's really trying to find ways to use U.S. government tools to encourage greater use of technology in the energy sector. And this includes not just hard infrastructure like power plants and power lines, but also some of the soft digital uh, power management systems where uh, bringing U.S. technology could be really helpful. Um, so that's that's one example. The other one is uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, several of us will be going to Ghana uh, for an all-day workshop with senior leadership in the energy and finance ministry. Um, Ghana is a country in West Africa which has made a lot of progress. Um, they're, they're close to universal access uh, for households in the country, um, but the cost and reliability of electricity in Ghana is still costing the country about a hundred thousand jobs a year. Um, and that, you know, if that was in the U.S., that's more than a million jobs a year because our power system wasn't working well. Um, so what we're trying, to, what we're going to be doing is, uh, I'll have, uh, folks from, from Stanford in California and from Colorado, um, and Washington meeting up with, uh, with our colleagues in Ghana to see if we can help the country move forward on gas to power and on setting their next round of, of energy goals. So those are two areas. Yeah, great. And Ghana is another country that uh, had a relatively recent discovery of major offshore oil reserves, right? That's true. In 2007, they had a, a, a for Ghana, very big, for the world, not so big, but it, it's, it's had a transformational effect on the country. But they're still, you know, it's more than 10 years later, they're still struggling to convert their own um, uh, fossil fuels into into power, and uh, you know they're trying an array uh, an array of solutions, um, but they're still they're still quite a bit uh, away from where they want to be. Yeah, fascinating. Well, I, I personally have a soft spot and uh, longtime interest in Ghana, partly because so in my my former life I was a musician and I actually played um, West African high life music with a master drummer from Ghana. And I actually spent a month in Accra studying traditional drumming. So, um, Oh, fantastic. So fantastic. If, if you get the chance to hear some music, <laughs> yeah. uh, make sure to do it. Oh, I will. There. Well, it's Ghana is also, you know, very close to my heart. I actually, I did my doctoral, uh, field work in Ghana. Um, and I try to get there at least every year. So, um, you know, Ghana is definitely one of my favorite places. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, thank you so much, Todd, for, um, you know, covering so much ground with us today. I, you know, I know we're only scratching the surface of a couple of these topics, but, um, but it's definitely piqued my interest and, and I think it will do the same for our listeners. So we're going to move now to the last segment uh, of our show, which we call top of the stack. And it's where, uh, we share 
uh, just something fun that we've been reading or watching or listening to that we think our listeners might be interested in. Uh, and I'll start us off uh, with a couple of books that came across my uh, screen just recently. So the uh, the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction this year is a new book called Amity and Prosperity, um, which is a book by a writer named Eliza Griswold, and it focuses on uh, negative impacts of shale gas development in Washington County, Pennsylvania, which is another place where I've actually spent quite a bit of time. I haven't read the book yet, but um, but I've heard a lot of good reviews, and so now it's going to be uh, at the top of my stack, uh, along with one other uh, book that was a um, was a nominee for uh, for the nonfiction Pulitzer Prize, which was a book called Rising by Elizabeth Rush, and that's about the impacts of uh, sea level rise on coastal communities in the U.S. So two out of the three uh, noted books for the Pulitzer this year were were about environmental issues. Um, uh, so definitely two books I'll be looking into. Uh, so Todd, how about you? What have you been thinking about or, or reading or enjoying lately? Yeah, so um, not to not to be too much of an energy nerd, but um, <laughs> the thing I was reading last week that I just found really fascinating, and I, I should preface this by saying I normally stay as far away from big international reports as possible, um, but I came across one from the International Energy Agency on the future of cooling. Um, that I just found uh, somewhat um, frightening, but but endlessly fascinating. Um, and part of this is because I've become a little bit obsessed with air conditioning. And, um, you know, we always think of lights when we think of energy, but really uh, uh, air conditioning is what uh, has really changed uh, the, you know, the world uh, as much as lighting, I think. Um, and w- what the IEA projects is that we're at about 1.5 billion air conditioners in the world. And by 2050, we're going to be at 5.5 billion air conditioners. Wow. Um, and, you know, if you look at your seasonal electricity bill, uh, especially if you live in Washington, D.C., it absolutely spikes in the summer. And so I think everyone knows that air conditioning is hugely energy intensive. So this is a major technological and environmental challenge, I think, Um Especially as, you know, the Indian middle class grows and Indian temperatures rise and air conditioning goes from being a, a luxury in India to a, a necessity. Um, I think this is, uh, you know, th- that, that really got my mind spinning, this, uh, IEA report. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Those numbers are just amazing. Um, yeah, thinking about the magnitude of energy impact and the magnitude of, you know, health benefits and other benefits that it will provide people. Oh, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So Todd Moss, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, and talking to us about uh, your multiple areas of interest and, and areas of work. And we'll wish you luck and look forward to learning more about them in the future. Great. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think. So please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.